in a world filled with history podcasters who take themselves too seriously and just buy a bunch of best-selling history works and regurgitate them for their audiences. One man would rise and do the exact same thing except he would try to have fun while doing so. His name was Neil Eckert of the War and Conquest podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Neil Eckert from the War and Conquest podcast. The show that attempts to make history fun again. We've got something for everyone. We've got sarcasm and metalcore intros and more sarcasm and well-researched and thought-out episodes that are derailed by random jokes and sarcastic conspiracy theorist scenarios and drunk reviews of historical movies. If you want to learn about the greatest conquerors in history and have fun at the same time, check out War and Conquest wherever you find your podcast or at warandconquest.com. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 100, A Sicilian Stalemate. With the departure of Alcibiades, although Nicias and Lamachus still held joint command, for all intents and purposes, Nicias called all of the shots now. Lamachus may have been the better tactician, but Nicias was the older, richer, and more illustrious general. Still, he knew that he couldn't just implement his purely passive strategy, and that he would need to tweak it somewhat in order to satisfy his troops and the Athenians back home. And so, Nicias set about implementing a newer plan, which essentially was a blending of his and Alcibiades' strategy. First, he wanted to see what could be done about the situation that originally brought the Athenians to Sicily, that being the dispute between Segesta and Selenus. And so, the triremes were divided into two squadrons, with each general taking one by lot, and together they led the fleet along the northern Sicilian coastline to Segesta and Selenus in the western part of the island. Along the way, although the Athenians were not permitted to land at Himera, the only Greek city in Carthaginian territory, they made a successful attack on Hikara, a small sickle town that was hostile to Segesta. They turned the town over to the Segestans and enslaved its inhabitants. From the captured booty, they were able to add a hundred talents of silver to their war chest. Afterwards, Lamachus and the army, along with some suggesting cavalry, marched southeast through the territory of the Sickles until they made it back to Catania. At the same time, Nicias combined both squadrons and led the entirety of the fleet, with the slaves on board, from Hikara to Segesta, in order to collect money and to try and settle its quarrel with Selenus. However, the Segestans only were able to give him 30 talents of silver for the war effort, and so he disappointingly, and irately, sailed back to Catania. On the way, they sold their slaves for a sum of 120 talents and sailed around to their sickle allies to urge them to send troops. At the same time, Lamachus and the army, with half of the forces, made an assault on the small town of Hebla in the territory of Catania, but did not succeed in taking it. 
Since it was now October, both Lamachus in the army and Nicias in the fleet joined up for winter quarters in their camp at Catania. As Lamachus had accurately predicted, Nicias's hesitation to attack Syracuse would be very costly. Not only did Nicias not have a clear plan of action, but the Syracusans had recovered from the initial shock of the Athenian invasion. Once they saw them retreat from their failed attack on Hebla, Syracusan confidence was restored, and they called upon their generals to take the initiative and to attack the Athenian base at Catania, since the enemy would not come to them. Scouting parties of Syracusan cavalry were sent out, and at one point, they rode up alongside the Athenian camp and began to insult them. They asked whether they had come to resettle the Leontines in their own land, as the herald had proclaimed before, or if they just came to settle themselves alongside the Syracusans, as it appears that they are afraid to fight them. These insults ultimately shamed Nicias into action, and with Alcibiades now out of the picture, Lamachus's presence and guidance seemed to bring him to life. But the two generals faced the problem of how to get their forces into position to attack Syracuse. They knew that they could not simply sail to Syracuse and disembark from their ships in front of a hostile army that was waiting for them, and if they marched directly on the city itself, the Syracusan cavalry would be able to mow down the Athenians' lightly armed soldiers and mob of camp followers. And so they needed to concoct a plan where they could land safely and at a time that the circumstances would limit the Syracusan cavalry's effectiveness. In this endeavor, Nicias likely showed the best generalship in the entire campaign. He had learned from some Syracusan exiles of such a spot, and using this information, he implemented a strategy that involved a bit of trickery. He sent a local Catanian man to Syracuse to act as a double agent. This man spoke to the Syracusan generals and pretended to relay information from some particular Catanians who they would have been friendly with and who were pro-Syracusans still left in the city. He told them that the Athenians spend the evenings inside the city, but that their camp, where all of their ships and arms were located, is some distance away. So if they would name a night and come with all of their army just before daybreak, the pro-Syracusan Catanians would close the gates with the Athenian troops still in the city, which would allow them to take their armaments. The Syracusan generals fell for this trap, and on one particular night, in the winter of 415-414 BC, the whole Syracusan army, including their cavalry, marched the 40 or so miles to Catania with the false promise of betrayal by their supposedly anti-Athenian citizens. This obviously was coordinated with their Catanian spy, so the Athenians knew the night when it was to take place. And so, at the same time that the Syracusans were marching on Catania, the entirety of the Athenian forces, plus some of their sickle allies, boarded their ships and sailed down the coast to Syracuse. They entered the Great Harbor and landed unopposed on a beach south of the Anapis River near the Olympium, a temple to Zeus Olympios that was built on the heights southwest of Syracuse. Nicias might have attempted at this moment to seize the city by assault, since he had the entire Athenian army outside Syracuse, whose army was now at Catania but he decided to establish his forces in the most advantageous location and await their return. When they learned of the ruse, the Syracusans returned as quickly as possible. They found that the Athenians had broken down the bridge over the Anapis River and were drawn up in an excellent position as they were flanked on their right side by walls and houses and natural barriers such as trees and a marsh and on the left side by cliffs stemming from the Olympium. 
They also hastily razed a fort at Dascon to their southeast, intended to protect their rear, their most vulnerable position. The Athenian carpenters and shipwrights had chopped down some trees to build a palisade around their camp and carried others, as well as stones, down to the sea to build a stockade to protect the triremes near the marsh and to defend themselves from an attack by sea. The Syracusans first marched close to the Athenian army, but they did not offer to engage, as they waited to begin the battle at their leisure. Instead, when they crossed the road between Haloris and Syracuse, they encamped for the night, likely so that their soldiers could get a good night's rest before the ensuing battle. On the next morning, half of the Athenian army assembled into battle position, lining up eight men deep with the Argives and Mantineans on the right, the Athenians themselves in the center, and the rest of their allies on the left. The other half formed up close to their tents in a formation that also was eight deep, except that they left a hollow square in the middle where the non-combatants were protected. These acted as reserves with orders to be ready in case they were needed to support any hard-pressed troops. Before the battle began, Nicias went along his lines and offered a few words of encouragement to his army. Essentially, he denounced the enemy and warned that Athens and their allies must win a place in Sicily by the sword and that the enemy's superior cavalry will make retreat impossible. Then, soothsayers brought forward the usual sacrificial victims, and trumpeteers urged on the hoplites to charge. The Athenians chose to attack first because they believed that they were the stronger and more experienced army and so they wished to exploit the Syracusans' lack of combat experience by catching them surprised. To make matters worse, as the Athenians advanced across the Anapis River, there was crashing thunder, lightning, and rain, which certainly added to the fears for most of the Syracusans who were fighting a land battle for the first time. Since they weren't expecting an attack, some soldiers had gone home to Syracuse for the night, and so they quickly had to be recalled. After they hurried back to find a place in the ranks wherever they could, in a mad scramble to get into formation, the Syracusans then advanced out to meet the Athenians. Whereas the Athenians had split their army in half, the Syracusans maintained their entire force together, and so their line was 16 men deep, double that of the Athenians, in order to offset the Athenian advantage and experience. Their strongest contingent was the Selenuntines on the right. Next to them were 200 cavalry from Gela and 25 cavalry and 50 archers from Camarina. To the far right were the 1,200 cavalry and archers from Syracuse. Their combined cavalry of 425 vastly outnumbered the 30 of the Athenians, which they left back at Naxos and didn't even bother to bring with them. To counter that disadvantage though, the Athenians must have placed themselves at an angle to the river in order to use it as a guard for their left side. The Athenians also positioned their slingers, archers, and stone throwers on the left wing to help fight off the enemy cavalry. But neither the Syracusans on their left nor the Athenians on their right positioned any cavalry, as these would have been rendered useless among the trees in the marsh. The battle began as the stone throwers, slingers, and archers on both sides began to release their weapons, until finally the two armies clashed into each other. Although they met some unexpectedly strong resistance at first, the Athenians won a resounding victory near the city's walls in what scholars call the First Battle of Syracuse, or the Battle of the Annapolis. Ultimately, the Argives on the right pushed back the Syracusan left, and the Athenians pushed through the center. With their army cut into two, the rest of the Syracusan hoplites began to flee, 
but their unopposed cavalry prevented the Athenian lightly armed troops from exploiting this advantage by chasing after them and killing them from behind. Therefore, this averted a catastrophe for the Syracusans, who lost about 260 men, while the Athenians had around 50 casualties. For the Athenians, though, while it was a tactical victory, it was without any immediate strategic result, as they were unable to press the advantage that day. And so the Athenians set up a victory trophy, with some captured armor on a pole, stripped the corpses of their enemy, and collected their own dead. After laying them on a pyre, performing the necessary prayers, and burning their bodies, they spent the night encamped on the field. Meanwhile, the Syracusans rallied near the road to Haloris, and while most returned to the city, they sent a garrison of their own citizens to the Olympium, fearing that the Athenians might lay hands on their gold and silver treasures stored there. However, at no point would Nicias attempt to plunder the temple in fear that they would incur the wrath of the gods. But according to Plutarch, they did manage to capture a Syracusan ship with tablets on board, which stated that the Syracusans had recorded lists of their citizens by tribes in the Olympion. And so the Athenians had taken these from the temple at some point before the battle in order to view how many military-aged Syracusans were available. On the next day, the Syracusans collected their dead under truce, and a few days later, the Athenians finally returned to Naxos. Thucydides explains Nicias' withdrawal by saying, quote, for it was winter, and it seemed impossible to wage war from there until cavalry was sent from Athens and collected from the allies, in order not to be inferior in this respect, and until money was collected from there and came from Athens. End quote. In addition, although Plutarch doesn't give specifics, it's likely that Nicias did not like what he saw on the enrollment lists taken from the Olympion, and this was another factor in his decision to withdraw. Shortly after the Athenians arrived back at Catania, they sailed with their forces to Messania. Apparently, a plot to betray the city over to the Athenians had been schemed up as early as the previous autumn, but after Alcibiades was condemned in absentia, he leaked information about it to pro-Syracusan friends at Messania. Once they found out, they immediately put to death the conspirators and rose up in arms with those who supported them against the Athenians, which prevented their admission into the city. The Athenians waited out for 13 days, but then gave up and sailed back to Naxos, where they put in their ships erected a palisade around their camp, and retired for the winter. Nicias and Lamachus sent a letter on a trireme back to Athens to report to the Ecclesia on the expedition's first campaigning season, and to appeal for cavalry and more money to be sent to them. The Athenians would vote to send 300 talents and a contingent of cavalry in the spring. There is much to criticize as the campaign season of 415 BC came to a disappointing end. Alcibiades was now gone, and his diplomatic strategy to gain more allies and money also failed. The Athenians had wasted away the summer with nothing major happening, before finally facing the enemy during the winter, though Nicias knew the majority of his troops wanted to attack them from the outset. He could not fall back on the excuse that he was unaware of the problems to be faced in Sicily, as he gave a perfect summary of them in his second speech to the Ecclesia, in particular the quality of their cavalry, as we discussed last episode. And this lack of cavalry is arguably the error that was the chief cause of the expedition's failure up to that point. He knew that cavalry would be essential for the capture of Syracuse, and he had been given a free hand by the Athenians to prepare whatever armed forces he felt that he needed. But for some reason, he did not stipulate that they should prepare to bring a massive force of cavalry in their horse transports, although he had plenty of time during the summer to call for them. And yet, he used the lack of cavalry as an excuse to postpone any further military action for another four months. Perhaps the oversight was more a failure of purpose than of judgment. 
After all, Nicias never wanted to attack Sicily, and he was forced into the campaign. Instead, he had intended to pursue a narrow course of action that would avoid any serious engagement. When circumstances made it unavoidable, he found himself without the forces to carry it out. Still, the biggest problem was his hesitation, and even Nicias' contemporaries blamed him for not acting more resolutely. In his birds, performed a few months later the following spring, Aristophanes makes a joke about the delays of Nicias, and Plutarch reports that the common opinion in Athens at this time was that, quote, by calculating too carefully and delaying and being overly cautious, he destroyed the opportunity for action, end quote. If Nicias had followed Lamachus's plan and had attacked Syracuse at once, the city might have fallen very quickly, like Brasidas's sudden and devastating attack on Amphipolis a decade before. Even if it didn't, walls or ramparts could have been built before winter set in, and with Syracuse cut off from supplies and all outside help, their surrender would have been inevitable. The delay not only allowed the Syracusans to gather allies and prepare their defenses, but the Athenians had revealed to them their areas of military superiority, and by contrast, those areas that were a weakness to Syracuse. And so Nicias allowed the Syracusans to have four months over the winter of 415-414 BC to rectify these deficiencies. After the Syracusans burned their dead following the battle, they held an assembly in which the general Hermocrates came forward to encourage his fellow citizens and to convince them to undertake a series of major military reforms. He says that despite their loss, their inexperienced army had done unexpectedly well at first against the more battle-hardened Athenians, and that they will only improve with better arms and training. He argues that what hurt them the most was their large number of generals, there were 15 of them, and the quantity of orders given, combined with the disorder and insubordination of the troops. Therefore, they needed to limit the number of generals to streamline the decision-making process, and he proposes that these be elected with full powers, and an oath should be taken to entrust them with discretion in their command. The Syracusan people agreed with him and voted for everything as he had advised. They then slimmed down their command structure from 15 to 3 generals, which now included Hermocrates, Heraclides, and Sicanus, and gave them full powers to make decisions without consulting the assembly which allowed for more effective leadership and better secrecy of plans. These three generals gave arms to the poorer men to allow them to fight as hoplites, which increased their numbers. They introduced a vigorous, mandatory training program for their hoplites, which was unusual among the amateur citizen armies of the Greeks, and they built and strengthened their defenses around the city and harbors. In doing so, they made a decision, which ultimately would save Syracuse, as they enlarged the line in their fortifications in order to enclose the sanctuary of Apollo Temenites along the side facing the heights of Epipoli. As a result, any future circumvallation wall would have to extend from sea to sea. This critical action, again, is a reflection of Nicias's lack of urgency, because if he had attacked in the first summer, the much shorter distance to be covered would have ensured a quicker construction of the Athenian circumvallation wall but now it would be much longer and more difficult. The Syracusans also erected a fort at Megara Hiblia and another in the Olympion, and they set up palisades along the sea wherever there was a suitable landing place in order to impede the Athenian fleet from landing there. Finally, since they knew that the Athenians were wintering inside the city of Naxos and not at Catania, they marched with all of their people to Catania and ravaged the land and set fire to their tents and encampments and then returned home.
Meanwhile, diplomats from both camps went out over the winter to secure more allies, troops, and funds. First, both the Athenians and Syracusans tried to gain assistance from their Greek cities in southern Italy and Sicily. In particular, both sides tried to cement their former alliances with Camarina, who had been on the Athenian side in the first Sicilian expedition, but was now on the side of Syracuse. When they learned that the Athenians were sending envoys to Camarina, the Syracusans grew worried. They had a shrewd suspicion that the Camarinians had not provided the aid that they did in their first battle very willingly, and they now feared that with Athens' recent successes, they would flip sides. So Hermocrates and the other generals went there to speak on Syracuse's behalf to the assembly. He warns the Camarinians that the Athenians did not come to assist them, or more specifically, to return the Leontines as they had claimed, but rather to expand their rule in the west and to conquer all of Sicily by using the same methods that they employed to develop their empire in Hellas and Ionia. He then blames the Sicilians for not uniting against an obvious foreign threat, which now gives Athens the hope that they can conquer them one by one. Addressing those Camarinians who envy or resent the power of Syracuse, Hermocrates points out that by aiding them against the Athenians, Camarina would be defending itself against the same enemy, who if strengthened by the fall of Syracuse, would then come against them. He says that it would be unnatural for them to support the Halkidian Leontines when other Italian Halkidians, like Regium, would not do so, as well as to maintain a neutrality that ultimately is harmful to Syracuse. He then reminds them that the Syracusans were able to defend themselves against Athens and are only going to get stronger. He concludes by saying that a neutrality that harms one side is not necessarily a fair or safe policy that Camarina's failure to help Syracuse will lead to permanent Syracusan enmity towards them, and that a continued neutrality will result in Camarina's ultimate submission to Athenian rule, and he implores them to assist the Syracusans. Then, Euphemus, the representative for the Athenians, responds to Hermocrates by saying that Syracuse only wants to rule Camarina, and that they should join with Athens if they wanted to remain free. He describes the Athenian Empire as an Ionian defense against a stronger Dorian confederacy and defends Athens' hegemony as a just reward for having risked it all against Persia. Although Euphemus seems to suggest in his speech that there was a sharp ethnic division between the combatants, with Athens allied with the Ionians and Syracuse with the Dorians, in fact there was both on each side. Euphemus then says that Athens has only come to Sicily to increase its, to increase its security which coincides with Camarina's interests and argues that a fear of domination has led Athens to empire and to Sicily, not a desire to enslave others. He asserts that the Athenians support all Sicilians hostile to Syracuse because their independence will preoccupy and prevent them from aiding the Peloponnesians and insists that expedience determines friendship for hegemonic powers. As they do in Hellas, he argues that Athens will build up independent states in Sicily to prevent Syracuse from achieving hegemony. He points out that Athens is far from Sicily and would be unable to hold Sicilian cities subject, whereas Syracuse is a nearby powerful and constant threat. And so, alliance with Athens is the natural and correct course for Camarina. He concludes that despite the large force that Athens has sent to Sicily, their actions are defensive only, and that this policy is in the interest of free Greeks everywhere, as it restrains aggression against smaller states by such potential hegemonists as Syracuse. Following these two speeches, the Camarinians then deliberated. They sympathized with the Athenian argument, 
but the great size of their fleet still gave them pause, as they feared that the Athenians might use it to subjugate all of Sicily. On the other hand, they had always been hostile to Syracuse, and feared the Syracusans the most of the two. And so the Camarinians decided to remain neutral, as they were allies to both. But quietly, they would continue to send aid to the Syracusans, although as sparingly as possible, in fear that, because if Syracuse won without their help, there would be retribution. Athens, though, did better with the non-Greek sickles in the interior, who were not subjects of Syracuse, and who were independent. Some of them came over to Athens freely, bringing goods, troops, and money, though others required force. At the same time, the Athenians moved their winter quarters from Naxos back to Catania and reconstructed the camp that was burnt by the Syracusans. They stayed there the rest of the winter because Catania's location made for better contact with the Sickles. They also sent triremes seeking assistance to the Carthaginians and Etruscans, both of whom were former enemies of Syracuse. Although many of the Etruscan cities offered to join them in the war and would eventually send a number of ships to Sicily, the Carthaginians declined to assist them. Still, this undermines the claims of Hermocrates, and later Alcibiades, that the Athenians had aspirations of conquering Carthage. On their way back from Carthage, the envoys stopped at Segesta to seek more horses. At the same time, the Syracusans sent envoys to Corinth and Sparta. Along the way, they stopped at the various cities on the southern Italian coastline to persuade them to interfere with Athenian proceedings and to join Syracuse's side. Thucydides doesn't mention how receptive they were, but it's likely that they weren't. When they finally arrived at Corinth, the envoys requested that the Corinthians be more active in open warfare in mainland Greece against the Athenians and to send help to Sicily. The Corinthians, as expected, were very willing and gladly voted at once to send support to their former colonists. Then, the envoys went on to Sparta. Although the Spartan authorities were sympathetic to their cause, they were still very unwilling to break their peace treaty and alliance with Athens, as they still felt responsibility for the outbreak of the Arcadamian War. Thucydides writes, quote, They felt that their wrongdoing was greater because the Thebans had gone into Plataea in peacetime, and although it was stated in the previous treaty not to take up arms, if the other wished to go to arbitration, they themselves had not submitted to arbitration when the Athenians offered it. And because of this, they believed that they deserved their misfortune and took it to heart about the disaster at Sphacteria and the other misfortunes that had befallen them. However, Alcibiades' intervention in the debate proved to be the catalyst that stirred the Spartans into action. But before we get there, let's backtrack and discuss how Alcibiades gained influence at Sparta, which shows just how well he knew how to talk out of both sides of his mouth, and how well he was able to adapt to the people around him. In order to fit in among the Spartan people, the Athenian frat star Alcibiades made a remarkable adjustment to the Spartan way of life, and like a chameleon, he assimilated and adapted himself to his surroundings. He engaged in vigorous bodily exercise, took cold baths, let his hair grow long and untrimmed in the Spartan manner, and ate the famous coarse bread and black porridge of the Spartan mess. Plutarch says that the Spartans could barely trust their own eyes, and doubted whether this was the same Alcibiades that they had heard stories of for his over-the-top luxuriousness. Thucydides says that a major goal of his speech to the Spartan assembly, following the arrival of the Syracusan envoys, was to ease the distrust and hostility that many still felt towards him. Because, as a demagogue supported by the Athenian people, 
as the political opponent of Sparta's friend Nicias, and as the chief architect of the Argive Coalition and the Sicilian Expedition, he was not the obvious man to give trustworthy advice to the Spartans. In addition, Alcibiades had not yet commanded a victory on land or sea. All of his diplomatic and military plans had produced strategic failures, or at least no decisive result, and he was acting as a traitor to his own homeland, a dishonor the Spartans abhorred. So he begins his speech by addressing his Spartan critics and justifying his past actions against Sparta with a boldness and imagination typically seen from a sophist in order to bluff his way into their good graces and to win influence and power among the Spartan authorities. He does so by presenting his treachery to his own city as a liberation from democracy, which he describes as a recognized foolishness. And he argues that he is not a traitor because he cannot betray a city from which he was wrongfully driven and which is no longer his. He defends his credibility by saying, quote, The true patriot is not the man who unjustly lost his own homeland, does not attack it, but the one who tries in every way to recover it because of his passion for it, end quote. He then urges the Spartans to ignore his past and to appreciate the future benefits that he could bring them by using his knowledge of Athenian plans to their advantage. He says, quote, If I did you great harm as an enemy, I could also do you considerable good as a friend, since I know the plans of the Athenians, while I only guessed at yours. End quote. Even if the Spartans bought into sophistry, they must have been skeptical of his claims that the generals who were left behind would carry out the same plans. The Spartans knew Nicias well, and so they must have known that he was lying. In addition, in an effort to frighten Sparta into resuming war against Athens, he paints a picture of Athenian imperial aims and ambitions, deliberately exaggerating Athenian plans. By explaining that if Athens conquered Sicily, they would then move on to the Italian mainland, and then cross over into Africa to take Carthage and its maritime empire, even in far-off Iberia. The forests of Italy would yield timber for a new and even larger Athenian fleet, manned in part by warlike Iberian tribesmen who previously fought for Carthage. With these forces, the Athenians would essentially become unstoppable, and could blockade the Peloponnese, defeat the Spartans, and extend their rule over the entire Mediterranean basin. So he implores the Spartans to act quickly and do something in order to prevent Athens from not only taking Sicily, but from taking over the entire Greek world. Specifically, Sparta should act for Peloponnesian interests by preventing the fall of Syracuse, and he gives them the perfect strategy to weaken and debilitate the Athenian effort. He advises the Spartans to establish a permanent garrison fort, called an Epitychismos, at Decalia in northern Attica which held a strategic location since it was an equidistance from both Athens and the Attic Boeotian border. This would deny the Athenians access to their land once again and force them to import everything by sea. In addition, from Decalia, they would cut off the Athenians from their silver mines at Larium and further reduce imperial revenues by encouraging rebellion in the empire. He also advises that they send hoplites to Syracuse and a first-class Spartan general to command them. By the end of his speech, the Spartans had grown concerned, and Thucydides says that they were now convinced that they needed to wage war against Athens once again. However, the evidence seems to suggest that they hadn't bought in quite yet. For one, they were still hesitant to invade Attica once again, as it would take a year and a half for them to follow through on that. 
and while they did make plans to send out a relief force the following spring to aid the Syracusans, they would only send four ships, two Corinthian and two Laconian, and no Spartiate soldiers went to Sicily, including the general Gallippus. So every element of the Spartan mission to Sicily was seen as expendable, implying that the Spartans still weren't willing to invest just yet. According to the 2nd century AD Roman historian Claudius Aelianus, in his work titled Various Histories, Gallippus was from a new class of Spartan men with inferior status, known as Mathakes. They were sometimes the offspring of a Spartan father and a helot mother, or sometimes the sons of impoverished Spartans who no longer had the means to contribute to the common meals, and thus no longer maintain their status in the core of equals. In this particular instance, he was the son of a helot woman and a Spartan man named Cleandridas, who had served as the advisor of King Pleistoanax, and had been expelled alongside him for allegedly accepting bribes during the First Peloponnesian War. Despite his inferior status, Gallippus trained for war in the traditional Spartan fashion, and on reaching maturity, he was selected to a military mess, and a wealthier Spartiate patron paid for his dues. For an individual of marginal origins, like Gallippus, the war in Sicily was an opportunity for him to gain honor and eminence, an opportunity that he jumped at. And despite his status and the Spartan authorities' ambiguity towards him, he would prove himself as one of Sparta's gifted commanders, whose dynamic tactical leadership would be in such contrast to Nicias's hesitancy. But before we get there, let's head back and check on the city of Athens. At the city Dionysia in the spring of 414 BC, Aristophanes won second prize with what would become the longest of his surviving plays. Unlike his earlier plays, though, the Orinthes, or the Birds, includes no direct mention of the Peloponnesian War, but there are many direct references to Athenian political and social life. When the Birds was performed, the Athenians were still optimistic about the Sicilian expedition, despite the recent controversy over the mutilation of the Herms and the Eleusinian mystery scandal. And so the play is remarkable for the joviality of its songs, and in particular, its mimicry of birds. A scolion on the birds infers from a passage in a play by Phrenicus, produced at the same contest, which has not survived, that a man called Syracosius carried a decree stating, quote, that people should not be comedied by name, end quote. While the attacks by Aristophanes and the birds shows that there cannot have been a total ban, the play does not name any of the men known to have been accused of involvement in the religious scandals, and some scholars believe that the decree likely protected them, though most are of the thought that there was never such a decree by Syracosius. The plot of the play revolves around two middle-aged Athenian men, Pistheteris, whose name means trusty friend, and his companion Eupides, or Good Hope. The play begins with Pistateris and Eupides stumbling across a hillside wilderness, with only thickets, rocks, and a single tree visible. They are each guided by a bird, Pistateris by a crow, and Eupides by a jay. They advise the audience that they are fed up with life in Athens, where people do nothing all day but argue over laws, and that they have brought these birds to help them find Tarius, a former king who has been transformed into the hoopoe, because they believe that he might help them find a better life somewhere else. Just then, a very large and fearsome bird, named Trochilus, emerges from a camouflage den. In terror, Pithoteris defecates in terror, which causes the crow and the jay to fly away. Trochilus is equally frightened and demands to know what they are up to, accusing them of being bird catchers. 
After Eupides also defecates, the two Athenian men learn that Trochilus is the Hoopo's servant. They appease him, and he returns into the thicket to fetch his master, who is sleeping. Moments later, the Hoopo himself appears, as a not very convincing bird, who attributes his lack of feathers to a severe case of molting. After he asks them what it is that brings them to his location, Eupides tells him that they are looking for a more pleasant city to live in than Athens. The Hoopo is happy to discuss their plight with them, and he offers a series of suggestions, which the two men shoot down for various reasons. Finally, Pythoteris has the brilliant idea that since no other city is suitable, the birds should stop flying about like idiots, and instead should build themselves a great city in the sky, where Pythoteris and Eupides could also live. This would not only allow them to lord it over the rest of mankind, but it would enable them to blockade the Olympian gods in the same way that the Athenians had recently starved the island of Milos into submission. The Hoopo loves the idea, and he agrees to help them implement it, provided, of course, that the two Athenians can convince all the other birds to join them. Then the Hoopo rushes back into the thicket to awaken his wife, Procne, or the Nightingale, and bids her to begin her celestial music. The flute is played behind the scene, imitating the song of the nightingale, while the hoopoe begins to sing in order to summon together all the birds of the world from their different habitats, the fields, mountains, trees, waterways, marshes, seas, and so forth. These soon begin to appear to form the chorus, and the hoopoe appears back on stage to identify them by name on their arrival. But when the chorus of birds discover the presence of these two men, they fly into a fit of alarm and outrage, as mankind has long been their enemy. A skirmish then follows as the chorus rushes at the two Athenians, but they manage to defend themselves with kitchen utensils that they found outside the Hoopo's home, until at last the Hoopo steps in front of the chorus and manages to persuade them to give his human guests a fair hearing. Pythoteris then delivers a formal speech, in which he advises the chorus of birds that they were the original gods, and urges them to regain their lost powers and privileges from the Olympians. The chorus of birds are completely won over, and urge the Athenians to lead them in their war against the usurping gods. But in order to do this, they must become birds themselves. So the two men retire into the Hoopo's home to chew on a magical root that will transform them into birds. Then, the nightingale emerges from her hiding place and reveals herself as an enchantingly feminine figure in the form of a young flute girl. She presides over the chorus of birds while they address the audience in a conventional parabasis. They deliver a brief account of the genealogy of the gods, claiming that the birds are children of Eros and grandchildren of Nyx and Erebos, thus establishing their claim to divinity ahead of the Olympians. They cite some of the benefits that the audience derives from birds, such as early warnings of a change in seasons, and they invite the audience to join them in their endeavor, since birds can more easily manage to do things that mere men are afraid to do, such as beating up their fathers and committing adultery. Pythoteris and Eupides then emerge from the Hopo's home, now with wings, as they laugh at each other's unconvincing resemblance to a bird. Then, along with the Hoopo and the chorus of birds, they begin to discuss what must be done. They first decide on a name for their future city in the sky, calling it Nephelokakigia, which literally means cloud cuckoo land. Then Pythoteris begins to take charge of things, ordering Eupides to oversee the building of the city's walls, while he organizes and leads a religious service in honor of the birds as the new gods. During this service, he is pestered by a variety of unwelcome visitors, including a young man out to hire himself to the new city as its official poet 
an oracle monger with prophecies for sale, the famous geometer Meton with tools offering to survey the land and air, an inspector from Athens with an eye for a quick profit, and a statute seller trying to peddle a set of laws. Pythoteras chases off all these intruders one by one, either with words, by striking them, or both, and then he retires indoors to finish the religious service. Afterwards, the chorus steps forward for another pair of asses. They promulgate laws forbidding crimes against the birds, such as catching, caging, stuffing, or eating of them. And they end by advising the festival's judges to award them first place, or risk being defecated on. Pythoteras then returns to the stage with news that the sacrifices were favorable, just moments before a messenger arrives, reporting that the construction of the city's new walls, thanks to the collaborative efforts of various kinds of birds. But as Pythoteras is bragging about the greatness of this wall, a second messenger arrives with the news that one of the Olympian gods has managed to sneak through the city's defenses without being detected by the jays guarding the wall. The identity of the deity is unknown, but the hawks were sent out to find the intruder. Just then, the goddess Iris appears high above by means of a crane. She soon wafts down onto the stage, where she is cornered and held under guard. After being interrogated and insulted by Pythoteras, she is allowed to fly off to her father Zeus to complain about her treatment. Hardly has she gone when a third messenger arrives, declaring that a large multitude of men are now flocking to join the new city in the sky. So Pythoteras orders slaves to fill every basket that they can find with wings for all those men who present themselves outside the walls and wish to live in this new city. Another set of unwelcome visitors then arrive as advertised, singing due to the inspiration of the new city. One is a rebellious youth named Parasite, who exalts in the notion that according to the new city's laws, at last he has permission to beat up his father. Next arrives the dysthrambic poet Canesius, waxing incoherently as the poetic mood takes hold of him. Third is a sycophant who is excited about the prospect of gaining wings so that he could fly around and find victims to prosecute from above. All of them are sent packing by Pythoteras. Finally, Prometheus arrives, wearing a special mask to conceal his identity, because he is an enemy of Zeus and does not want to be seen from the heavens above. He advises Pythoteras that the Olympians are starving because men's offerings no longer reach them, and so they are desperate for a peace treaty, but Pythoteras should negotiate with them until Zeus surrenders a scepter and marries him to Basileia, or Sovereignty, who is the real power in Zeus's household, as all good things come from her. After Pythoteras agrees to this, Prometheus departs. Moments later, a delegation from Zeus arrives, consisting of Poseidon, the oafish Heracles, and some even more oafish god named Tribulus. At the same time, slaves appear on stage carrying various kitchen utensils, and one of them sets up a table on which he places poultry dressed for roasting. As Pythoteras oversees the preparation of dinner, he lays out his demands to the delegates and says that if, and only if, these are agreed upon, will he invite the ambassadors to dinner, where they will offer sacrifices that will reach the Olympians. This ploy easily outwits Heracles, who quickly votes to give Pythoteras everything that he wants so that he could eat a meal. Tribulus also consents to Pythoteras' terms, and so despite his objections, Poseidon is outvoted. As a result, they agree to accompany Pythoteras to Olympias, where he will receive Zeus's scepter and take Basileia as his wife. 
Some slaves then bring in a beautiful wedding tunic, and Pythoteris and the three gods depart. Afterwards, a heavenly herald enters, proclaiming that Pythoteris has transformed into a bird-like god himself, and replaced Zeus as the king of the gods, and that he is on his way back now. Pythoteris then enters with a crown on his head, and he is accompanied by Basileia. As the play ends, the chorus begins to sing the wedding march, and all actors depart in a festive dance. Scholars are divided on how to interpret the birds by Aristophanes. Some believe that it is a political allegory, where Cloud Kakuland is an overambitious scheme like the Sicilian expedition. In this interpretation, the birds symbolize the Athenians and their enemies of the Olympian gods. Some take it a step further and argue that Pythoteris is a metaphor for the character of Alcibiades. Others see Cloud Kakuland as a cautionary comic representation of an ideal polis that has gone wrong. And according to yet another view, the play is nothing more than escapist entertainment. Whatever the case, we don't really know exactly how Aristophanes or his patrons felt about the Sicilian expedition, but it's likely that it was not favorable. Returning to Sicily, the Athenians had spent the winter preparing for a major attack on Syracuse and for putting the city under siege, as workers in the camp at Catania made bricks and implements of iron. At the same time, Nicias had entered into secret communication with pro-Athenian Syracusans, who seemed ready to open the gates. Once the planned siege had cut the city off from supplies, had reduced it to starvation, and had convinced other citizens that resistance was futile. With more victories, like the one that they just had the previous year, and with more help from Syracusan traders, Nicias and Lamachus hoped that this would bring about a speedy end to the expedition. So great energy was put into these preparations under their joint command. But before they could put their plan into motion, they had to wait on the reinforcements to arrive from Athens. So in the meantime, when the springtime came, the Athenian fleet sailed out from Catania southwards along the shore to Megara Hablaia. They landed and laid waste to the countryside. But after an unsuccessful attack upon a Syracusan fort, they sailed the fleet up the Tereus River, advanced inland, and set fire to their grain fields. After killing some members of a small Syracusan reconnaissance party, they set up a victory trophy and went back to their ships. They then sailed back to Catania, marched overland to the northwest with their whole force to raid and attack several other sickle towns until they capitulated. When they returned to Catania, they found that the reinforcements finally had arrived, consisting of 250 cavalry, 30 mounted archers, and 300 talents of silver. Now that they had more cavalry, together with their hoplites, they could now protect the men who would build the siege walls, so they initiated their strategy of circumvallation to blockade Syracuse from the rest of the island. The Athenian plan was to build walls between the two seas, which would cut off Syracuse from supplies by land, and to maintain a sea blockade with its fleet to starve them into surrender. In order to do this, Nicias and Lamachus planned to lead an Athenian strike force at full speed to seize the heights known as Epipoli, a triangular plateau to the northwest of Syracuse. Its northern and southern sides consisted of steep cliffs, and the easiest ascent was at Euryalus in the far west. The Syracusans, though, knew that control of Epipoli was vital to its defenses. So one morning, the three generals called all of their hoplites out into the field and handpicked 600 of them to guard its approaches. They were to be led by Diamilus, an exile from Andros. That same morning, the Athenians sailed from Catania and landed unobserved with all of their ships and soldiers at Leon, which was about a half a mile north of Euryalus. 
They anchored at nearby Thapsus, a peninsula running out into the sea with the narrow isthmus. While the navy threw a stockade across the isthmus and remained quiet at Thapsus, the army immediately went at a run to Epipoli and seized control of Euryalus before the Syracusan force of 600 had made their way up from the meadow. When Diomelus and his force realized that the Athenians had secured the heights, they immediately began to hustle the three miles or so to their position. But they did so in disorder, and therefore they were no match for the Athenians, who also had the advantageous higher position. And so the Athenians easily defeated the 600 Syracusan troops, killing 300 of them, including their commander Diomelus. The Athenians then set up a victory trophy and allowed the Syracusans to collect their dead under truce. On the next day, they descended the heights to the plains in front of Syracuse itself. But since nobody came out to meet them, they turned around, ascended the heights once again, and started construction on a fort at Labdalum, which sat to the east of Euryalus on the northwestern cliffs, looking towards Megara Hablia. This fort would serve as their storehouse for their equipment, supplies, and money. Not long afterwards, reinforcements in the form of 300 cavalry from Segesta and about 250 from the Sickles, Naxians, Catanians, and other Sicilian allies arrived at Labdalum. These were purchased with the 300 talents of silver that the Athenian people had just sent along. In total, they had about 800 cavalry now. Then, altogether, the Athenian forces advanced towards the southern edge of the plateau at a place called Sika, where they began to build a second fort which Thucydides calls the Circle, as it would serve as the nerve center of their military operations while they conducted the siege. It sat on the southern cliffs and would become the hub of their two walls, one going north in the direction west of Tragolis on the coast, and the other going south to the Great Harbor. The speed with which the Athenians achieved this and the walls were being constructed brought great dismay to the Syracusans, so they went out to challenge them and prevent their completion. But when the Syracusan generals saw that their troops, despite their mandatory training, were still disordered and badly disciplined, they retreated behind the city's walls, though they left part of their cavalry behind. These managed to prevent the Athenians from continuing to raise their wall further to the south of the Great Harbor by harassing them any time that they tried to gather large stones or disperse to any great distances south of the circle. This kept happening until a regiment of Athenian hoplites, alongside all 800 of their cavalry, finally charged out against the Syracusan cavalry. In this skirmish, the Athenian forces routed the Syracusans, and they set up a victory trophy. At the same time, in the north, the Athenians were able to collect stone and timber, and continued to extend their wall towards Tragolus. With the north secured by their forces, they were able to bring their provisions by land from Thapsus. Instead of regrouping and offering battle, the Syracusan generals, above all Hermocrates, decided not to send out more cavalry or their entire army, but instead to build a counter wall, which they envisioned to be at a right angle to the Athenian wall to prevent its completion. It would begin from a horizontal position, roughly opposite the circle, to the south of Epipoli, and was intended to turn vertical to the east of Tragolus, and thus form a right angle to the Athenian wall. If successful, it would cut across the projected line of the southward portion of the Athenian wall, and thus guarantee Syracusan access for supplies and troops from the rest of Sicily and beyond. They constructed it out of stone and timber, and erected towers along its length. Perceiving that the Athenians would not come out to fight them, once the Syracusans thought that the stonework of their counter wall was sufficiently far advanced, they built a stockade and left one detachment behind to guard their wall while they sent the rest of the troops back into the city. 
Instead of attacking the counter wall, though, the Athenians turned their attention to the water supply of the besieged city by destroying the pipes that ran underground into Syracuse. But soon enough, Syracuse in negligence gave them an opportunity to capture the counter wall. The Athenians began to notice that every day in the midday heat, the Syracusans left the walls carelessly defended as all those in the guard detachment went back to their tents to escape the sun. So on one particular day, the Athenians sent a hand-picked unit of 300 hoplites and some lightly armed soldiers who were given heavy armor for the occasion to assault this undefended position. Nicias and Lamachus followed directly behind with the rest of the army, with each leading a wing. Taking the Syracusan garrison by surprise, they caused them to retreat to their narrowly extended wall around the sanctuary of Apollo Temenites, which sat to the northwest of Syracuse. The Athenian forces managed to catch up to them, and a fight ensued near the wall with a few casualties before all of the Syracusans managed to get behind their defenses. The Athenians then set up a victory trophy and destroyed the Syracusan counter wall and stockade, carrying away the stakes and materials to their own lines. The whole army then retired back to the circle. On the next day, further progress resumed from the circle for the Athenian southern wall to the Great Harbor. This alarmed the Syracusans, who immediately proceeded to construct a second counterwall a bit more south than their first one, just north of the Lysimela Marsh that sat on the shores of the Great Harbor. This one was built with a trench, and it aimed to block the Athenians from extending their wall to the sea. The Athenians, meanwhile, had extended their own wall southwards to the edge of the cliffs of Epipoli, and were already preparing for a new attack on the second Syracusan counterwall, this time from both land and sea. At dawn, they ordered their fleet to sail around from Thapsus into the Great Harbor, while the army came down from Epipoli into the plain. This attack was led by Lamachus, while Nicias remained back at the circle, as he had recently become ill with a kidney ailment that would trouble him until his death. In most actions, he was able to take part, but in this particular instance, he was too weak, and so he lied in bed within the circle. In any case, the Athenians laid wooden planks over the marsh where it was the muddiest and firmest so that they could cross over it. When they realized that they were about to be attacked, the Syracusans fled. Some ran northeast to the city, while others went southwest to the Annapolis River. Another detachment of 300 hand-picked Athenian shock troops attacked their position at the river, hoping to corner them at the bridge. But the Syracusan generals had anticipated this, so they had cavalry waiting at the river, and together with the hoplites, they routed the 300 Athenians pursuing after them. Then, the Syracusan cavalry advanced on the right wing of the main Athenian army, which had positioned itself near the second counterwall. This kicked off a major battle that ultimately was won decisively by the Athenians, due to the superior discipline of their army. At first, the Athenian right was thrown into panic by the appearance of the Syracusan cavalry, but Lamachus, who was commanding the Athenian left, acted boldly and decisively by hurrying to help them with a few archers and the Argives. He managed to steady the line, but it came at a steep price as he died in a ditch with a few of his men. Plutarch reports that they were killed while being attacked by some Syracusan cavalry. In particular, Lamachus fought against a Syracusan man named Callicrates, who challenged him to single combat. They both exchanged mortal blows and died simultaneously on the battlefield. The Syracusans managed to get possession of Lamachus's body with his armor, and when the Syracusan line finally broke, they carried it with them as they retreated across the Annapolis River toward their fortress at Olympium. 
At the same time that this was taking place, some of those Syracusans who had fled into the city had sallied out and formed up against the Athenians in front of them. These were intended to act as a distraction, while a second, smaller force was sent to attack the circle up on the heights, which they had hoped to take while it was undefended. This force was able to capture and demolish part of the incomplete southern portion of the Athenian wall, but the sickly Nicias managed to have enough of a wherewithal to order his servants to make a makeshift brazier and light it. So they set fire to the timber that laid in front of the walls, which were being used for the construction of the siege engines. This caused a great flame to rise, alerting the army down in the plain that the fort was in danger, and so Nicias was able to save the circle, as it prevented the attackers from advancing any further. The timing of it was fortunate too, as the Athenian fleet had now reached the great harbor and began to embark, so that their army in the plain was free to run back up to the heights and protect their fort and their only remaining general. Seeing the Athenian army in mass swarming at them, the Syracusan detachment at the heights fled back to their city. Then the Athenians set up a victory trophy and allowed the Syracusans to collect their dead under truce, receiving Lamachus's body in return and those who had fallen with him. Afterwards, the Athenians set up a victory trophy and allowed the Syracusans to collect their dead under truce, receiving Lamachus's body in return and those who had fallen with him. The Athenians had successfully destroyed the Syracusans' second counter wall, gained control of the plains below Epipoli, and landed their fleet into the Great Harbor. But a high price was paid for this success, as the death of Lamachus meant that Nicias, who was now ill, was the only remaining Athenian commander of the original three. And so, as would happen many times during the Sicilian expedition, an Athenian victory had lost more than it had gained. The skill and daring of Lamachus would be sorely missed, and his untimely death extinguished the rare spark of initiative that had engulfed Nicias in early 414 BC. But despite his illness, Nicias at first handled the situation well. Now that all of his ground and naval forces were in relative close proximity, he established an Athenian camp in the Great Harbor, intending to finally finish their southern wall from Epipoli to completely blockade Syracuse, as it was only a matter of time before their northern wall to Trogolus was finished. News of their success spread quickly and many of the Greek Sicilians and Sickles who previously hesitated to join their cause would now be brought into their alliance and begin to send supplies to the Athenians. Three Pentaconters also would arrive from Etruria. At the same time, the demoralized Syracusans began to divide into factions, blaming each other for their present misfortunes, and rumors began to spread among their citizens of a treasonous plot afoot to surrender their city to the Athenians. Ultimately, those in charge were made into scapegoats, and the people voted to remove her. And the people voted to remove Hermocrates, Heraclides, and Sicanus as generals, and to replace them with Eucles, Tellius, and another second man named Heraclides. Thucydides says that the popular opinion in Syracuse was that they no longer would be able to win the war, since no help was coming from the Peloponnese. And so, some of the Syracusan authorities began to discuss terms of surrender among themselves, and even with Nicias. As always, Nicias had excellent intelligence, and he had every reason to believe that the city would soon give up without another fight. But at this point, the situation began to change in favor of the Syracusans, as a mood of overconfidence and carelessness began to fill him. As a result, valuable time, possibly as much as two months, was wasted in doubling the width of the southern wall to the Great Harbor, whereas the priority should have been to finish the northern wall to Trogolus in order to complete the circumvallation of Syracuse. In addition, there followed a catalog of disastrous errors of judgment on the part of Nicias, 
most important of which was that he didn't take serious enough the role that the Spartans were about to have in preventing an Athenian takeover of Sicily. Gallippus' arrival would change the situation drastically, and he would seize the initiative from Nicias and turn what should have been an impregnable position for the Athenians into one of desperation. While these events were unfolding around Syracuse, back in the Peloponnese, Gallippus and a Corinthian admiral named Pythis had set out from Messene in Messenia with four ships, two Laconian and two Corinthian, as an advanced relief force. They first sailed to Lucas, where Gallippus gave the orders for them to staff an additional 10 Corinthian, two Lucadian, and two Ambraciate ships, and to send them off to Syracuse as soon as possible. They then led their four ships across the Ionian Sea to southern Italy, with all haste to come to the relief of Syracuse. However, along the way, Gallippus received false intelligence reports that the Athenians had completed both of their circumvallation walls, and that Syracuse was now completely blockaded. So thinking that Syracuse was now lost, Gallippus instead decided to attempt to save southern Italy from Athens. Therefore, he chose to land at Teros, and from there, he first sought help from the people of Thurii, trying to rely on the rights of Thurian citizenship that his father had been given, as we discussed in episode 43. But the Thurians turned him away, likely because they didn't take him and his small number of ships serious enough to pose a threat to the massive Athenian fleet that they watched sail by the previous year. So disappointed, he then led his ships south along the eastern Italian coastline. But they were caught by a violent wind and were carried out to sea before they ultimately made it back to Taros. There, he hauled his ships ashore and they began to repair those that were damaged in the storm. In the meantime, Nicias had been informed of his arrival, but like the Thurians, he didn't take the small number of Gallippus' ships as significant, and having considered him to be acting more like a pirate, he took no precautions yet against him. This was Nicias' best chance to destroy Gallippus before he had any chance to establish himself, and while he was still at his most vulnerable. However, his overconfidence for the might of the Athenian navy against Gallippus' four ships gave the Spartan commander breathing space, which would come back to haunt Nicias dearly. After refitting his ships at Teros, Gallippus sailed along the coast to Locri, where they finally received correct intelligence about the situation in Syracuse. While mulling over his next course of action, Gallippus then learned that Nicias had now finally decided to intervene and sent four ships to intercept him. So he quickly sailed through the Straits of Messana, reached Regium, and continued to Himera on the northern coast of Sicily. There, he persuaded the Himerians to join the Peloponnesian expedition and to provide arms for his crew. At the same time, he sent word for the Selenuntines to come and meet him with all of their forces. The Galoans and some of the Sickles, who changed sides because of the death of their pro-Athenian king, Archonidas, also sent a few troops. Because of his energy, confidence, and zeal, Gallippus was able to raise an army from nearby Sicilian cities that numbered around 3,000 infantry, including 1,000 hoplites, and 300 cavalry. After his army had assembled at Hemera, he began to march them southwards towards Syracuse. At the same time, additional support in the form of 14 triremes from Lucas were also on their way. They were commanded by Gongolus, and on a single trireme, he sailed ahead of the rest and managed to slip past the Athenians and arrive at Syracuse before Gallippus' overland march was able to. And he appeared just in time, because the Athenians were just about to complete their siege walls, and the Syracusans were losing hope. In fact, he arrived as the Syracusans were holding an assembly to consider whether or not they should surrender. 
but he managed to persuade them to hold out just a little bit longer by telling them that more ships and troops were on their way and that the Spartan Gallipus would be here soon to take command. At the news of this, the Syracusans grew courageous once more and immediately prepared all of their forces to meet Gallipus' army at their fortified citadel in the sanctuary of Apollo Temenites on the southeastern foothills of Epipoli. Meanwhile, along his march towards Syracuse, Gallipus had taken Aietea, a fort of the Sickles still sided with the Athenians. And as he approached the city of Syracuse, he was surprised to find that he didn't meet any Athenian opposition. There is no way that Nicias didn't realize that Gallipus's voyage to the northern coast of Sicily was to raise an army, and that the only access to Syracuse was through Euryalus, which was the route Nicias himself had used a few months earlier to gain control of Epipoli. Therefore, he would have known that it was essential to defend the road to Euryalus in order to prevent Gallipus and his army from uniting with the Syracusans. Yet, for some unknown reason, Nicias and the Athenians were taken totally by surprise by the arrival of Gallipus' army, which scaled the pass through Epipoli as if it was undefended. This negligence here was another bad tactical blunder on the part of Nicias. Furthermore, like Gongolus, Gallipus also arrived at a critical moment, as the Athenians were just about to complete their double siege wall of almost a mile down to the Great Harbor, needing only to finish a short section near the sea. Most of the northern wall to Trogolus was still unfinished, though the Athenians had laid out stones across the line that they intended to use to finish it, something which Gallipus would make note of. At the sudden approach of Gallipus's army towards their southern siege wall, the Athenians immediately lined up in battle formation. But Gallipus halted at a short distance off and sent a herald, offering the Athenians a truce if they would leave Sicily for good within five days. Nicias, though, dismissed the herald without even bothering to give an answer. According to Plutarch, Nicias' soldiers began to mock Gallipus' men, teasing them that the presence of a single Spartan cloak and staff had somehow emboldened them into thinking that they could defeat the Athenians, who only recently had managed to defeat and capture Spartans that were far more noteworthy and with longer hair than Gallipus, referring to the pure-blooded Spartiates at Sphacteria. Still, Gallippus' troops were impressed by his boldness, and his dynamicism was revealed at once by his willingness to face the Athenians immediately in battle at their fortifications. However, for all of his bravado, his hoplites were so disorganized and undisciplined that he was forced to lead them away into ground that was more open. Thucydides is critical of Nicias' reaction to this retreat, admonishing him for not leading the Athenians forward against them, but remaining on the defensive by their own wall. This was an ideal opportunity for Nicias to defeat Gallipus, which would have destroyed his credibility among the Syracusans, and discouraged further resistance. The Athenians had already won four victories, and another victory now would have led almost certainly to the surrender of the Syracusans, who as we mentioned had reached such a point that they had held an assembly to discuss whether they should end the war just before Gongolus arrived. But as it were, Nicias' inaction allowed Gallipus to regroup and strategize. Afterwards, Gallippus led his army around the uncompleted Athenian northern wall and down the heights of Epipoli on the southeastern edge to the sanctuary of Apollo Temenites, where the rest of the Syracusan army was stationed and awaiting his arrival. On the next day, Gallippus took command of the Syracusan army and galvanized them into action. He gave them new energy and improved their fighting mettle, and immediately he set about putting his plan into action to prevent the Athenians from completing the circumvallation of Syracuse. 
First, that same day, he led out the main body of his army and drew them up in battle formation in front of the Athenian fortifications in order to divert their attention, while a small detachment of hand-picked troops were sent around the circle to the Athenian fort at Labdalum. They managed to seize the fort and all of its contents, killing the small force of Athenians left behind to guard it. And the rest of the Athenians were clueless, as Labdalum was so far out of vision from the circle. Nicias's carelessness in failing to properly safeguard the fort with all of its supplies, food, and money was another oversight on his part. On the same day, the Syracusans also captured an Athenian trireme that moored off the Great Harbor. Then, Gallippus exploited another of Nicias's errors. As we discussed, instead of finishing the northern wall to Trogolus as quickly as possible, Nicias had chosen to focus on building a double wall down to the Great Harbor. So Gallippus took advantage of this and started the construction of a third Syracusan counterwall, which was to run horizontal to the north of the circle from the newly captured Labdalum and cut off the Athenian northern wall from reaching the coast. If successful, this would destroy Athenian chances for a blockade. But Nicias, predictably at this point, didn't hasten to prevent the construction of Gallippus's counterwall or to complete the Athenian wall to Trogolus. Instead, he continued on the completion of his southern double wall. Only when it was finished did he send up his forces to continue the northern wall and to place his troops at various stations to keep watch on the Syracusan army. However, he still refused to attack Gallippus's position. Nicias's refusal to fight cannot be explained away simply as another example of him being overly cautious, though, but rather as a result of fearful pessimism, which ultimately reflected a fundamental change in his goals and strategy for the campaign. Thucydides writes, quote, he was now turning his attention more towards the war at sea, seeing that the land war, since the arrival of Gallippus, was less hopeful for themselves. End quote. And so Nicias decided, likely unwisely, to put forth all Athenian energy towards the Great Harbor. Therefore, he ordered the fortification of Plumerium, a promontory forming the southern side of the narrow entrance into the Great Harbor that faced the island of Ortigia, to make it their new storehouse for most of their equipment and naval base for all of their ships. From there, the Athenian ships could keep watch over the Great Harbor's mouth. Then, he brought across some of his hoplites to act as a garrison, and the Athenians began to build a row of three forts to protect the base against attacks by land. Apart from Nicias's personal responsibility for failing to prevent the arrival of Gallippus, which would have avoided this situation entirely, his fearful pessimism about the hopelessness of a land war, and his decision to relocate his energy towards the sea, is peculiar. Despite the fact that the Athenians had yet to be bested on land in a pitched battle against the Syracusans, he somehow managed to lose the confidence necessary to win the all-important land war upon which the success of the whole campaign depended. Even more consequential was the deterioration in the fighting quality of the fleet that arose from his move to Plumerium. That's because the site had several disadvantages. What little water and firewood were available were not close to the forts, so the need to obtain supplies from further afield would lead to constant casualties inflicted in skirmishes with the Syracusan cavalry, who had already set up a base near the Olympium from which they could attack them. The Athenian relocation of Plumerium also dangerously divided Nicias's land forces, as the main army on the heights of Epipoli was far from its own supplies. Furthermore, only after the Athenian forts had been established at Plumerium did Nicias send 20 ships to the vicinity of Regium and Locri in order to try to intercept the Corinthian reinforcement fleet that was approaching Sicily. 
At the same time, as Gallippus' forces continued with the erection of their counter wall, they used the same stones that had been noticed before that the Athenians had laid out for their own wall. As the Syracusan wall began to approach them, Gallippus regularly challenged the Athenians to battle, though he rightfully perceived that Nicias did not wish to engage him in any hostilities. In rejecting his offers to fight, Nicias's timidity undermined the morale of the Athenian soldiers, while simultaneously boosting the confidence of the Syracusans. Gallippus, though, knew that the war would be won on the battlefield, and not due to who could build a better wall. So eventually, he grew tired of Nicias's hesitancy, and tried to force his hand by outright attacking the Athenian army. But he made the rare mistake of choosing to fight the battle in a narrow space, where he could not make use of his superior cavalry and javelin throwers. And so Gallippus's forces were defeated by the Athenians. They then erected a victory trophy, and the Syracusans took up their dead under truce, which included the Corinthian commander Gongolus. Afterwards, Gallippus called his troops together and assured them that their loss was in no way because they were inferior to the Athenians, and he placed the blame for the defeat entirely on his shoulders. He promised to rectify his mistakes and to lead them to victory the next time. This level of accountability from their commander won even more respect from the Syracusans, and quickly Gallippus would get the opportunity to redeem himself. When his counter wall finally met the line of the Athenian wall to Trogolus, Nicias was now forced either to fight or to allow Gallippus to continue building his wall, which would officially forfeit the Athenian strategy to enclose the city. And Gallippus knew this, so he led his army out for a second battle, but this time he led them out further from the fortifications, where he could make better use of his military advantages in a more open space. During the ensuing battle, Gallippus's cavalry proved to be decisive, driving the exposed Athenian left wing back. This caused a general rout, and the Athenian army avoided destruction only by running to the safety of the circle. This was the first defeat that the Athenian forces suffered in six battles, and it turned out to be a great strategic victory for Gallippus. One defeat in six was disappointing, but this loss could be reversed if Nicias was able to recapture the Syracusan counterwall before it could be completed. However, this defeat seemed to confirm Nicias's fears about the effect of Gallippus' arrival, and in his hesitancy, he allowed the Syracusans to regain the initiative. And so, that very night, the Syracusans extended their counterwall horizontally across the vertical Athenian wall. This made the Athenian wall useless, as it ensured continued Syracusan access for supplies and extra troops. And so, all hope of completing the circumvallation of Syracuse and starving them into surrender was now gone. To make matters worse, the Corinthian reinforcement fleet had managed to avoid the 20 ships that Nicias had sent to intercept them, and with Athenian attention focused on defending the heights of Epipoli, they were able to sail into Syracuse's great harbor unopposed. The crews of these ships, under the command of Arisonides, supplied Gallippus with over 2,000 men. In order to protect their newly won position, Gallippus built a fort at the Euralis Pass and placed 600 troops there to guard the entrance to Epipoli installing the Syracusans and their allies in three camps on the plateau. With these successes behind him, Gallippus left Syracuse to embark on a tour to recruit land and naval forces, and to bring over neutrals and allies who had held back help while the Athenians seemed likely to win. He also sent messengers to Sparta and Corinth to report back and to ask for reinforcements in ships and men. The Syracusans' confidence had increased drastically now, so much so that they began to train their naval crews with the intention of challenging the mighty Athenian fleet. 
All of this brought despondency to Nicias, who was convinced now more than ever that the situation was hopeless. And in the late summer, he wrote a long, urgent letter that he wanted hand-delivered to the ecclesia, as he did not trust any of his messengers to give an accurate account of the direness of the situation, or at least how he wanted the situation portrayed. His letter told of the Athenian reverses since the previous year, that they had stopped besieging Syracuse and were now on the defensive, that Gallippus was recruiting reinforcements and planning an attack on the Athenians by land and sea, and that their diplomatic overtures had proved to be an utter failure, as the arrival of the large Athenian fleet did the opposite in that it united the disunited Sicilians against them. In justifying his poor performance, though, he blamed the troubles that confronted the Athenian force on the length of the campaign and the requirements of the blockade. Quote, Our fleet was originally in first-class condition. The timbers were sound, and the crews were in good shape. Now, however, the ships have been at sea so long that the timbers have rotted, and the crews are not what they were. We cannot drag our ships on shore to dry and clean them, because the enemy has as many or more ships than we have, and keeps in the constant expectation of having to face an attack. We can see them at their maneuvers, and the initiative is in their hands. Moreover, it is easier for them to dry their ships, since they are not maintaining a blockade." End quote. Nicias, though, didn't mention that it was his actions or inactions that caused these conditions. In particular, the Athenians were unable to relax their guard to prevent their supplies from being cut off, since almost everything had to be brought by sea. The reversal of Athenian fortunes brought other problems, too. Sailors leaving camp to collect fresh water, wood, and forage for the horses were attacked and killed by Syracuse and cavalry. Slaves, mercenaries, and volunteers were deserting, and so the resulting shortage of experienced rowers further deprived Athens of its initial advantage. Nicias warned that soon their allies, perceiving that Syracuse was likely to win, would stop sending food, and the Athenian expedition then would be dead in the water. Although he claimed that his report offers the unvarnished truth, Nicias's message painted a much darker picture than reality. The Athenians were still superior at sea, and he seems to be exaggerating their shortage of supplies. He stressed that the generals or the army were not to blame for any of the problems he laid out. But in reality, everything that happened wasn't inevitable, but a product of his lethargic, overconfident, and careless leadership. The true purpose of Nicias's dishonest and self-serving account was that he wanted the ecclesia to give him the authority to evacuate, or at the very least to be relieved of his command, since he was now suffering acutely from kidney disease. Although he retained full authority, and so technically did need the ecclesia's permission to withdraw, he knew that to do so without their approval, after achieving nothing and failing spectacularly, would have brought dishonor to his reputation, which he spent his entire life building and guarding. More importantly, he likely would have risked political and legal consequences, as befell most commanding officers who fell short of the Athenian people's expectations. Therefore, his letter basically delivered an ultimatum, saying that the Athenians must either recall the force in Sicily or reinforce it with another one just as large, both in infantry and ships, and with a great deal of money. But whatever they shall decide, they must do it quickly before the enemy forces in Sicily grow too powerful. Once again, he tried to shock the Athenians into giving up their dreams of conquering Sicily by saying that only a force as large as the original could have success now. Nicias likely thought that the Athenians wouldn't want to invest more into Sicily than they already have, and therefore would likely decide to recall them. If he had simply stated that there was no prospect for victory, the Athenians might have agreed to withdraw, 
If he had only explained that he was too ill to do the job, they might have recalled him only and sent a healthy general in his place. But he was more concerned for his own reputation, and so he offered them a choice, showing that he had learned nothing over the past two years. He again had misread the Athenian people, and they called his bluff. After his letter was read aloud in the Ecclesia, they refused his request for withdrawal and for him to be recalled as general. Instead, they chose to elevate Menander and Euthydemus, two high-ranking officers in his army in Sicily, to the rank of Strategos, effectively replacing Lamachus and Alcibiades, so that he wouldn't be left alone in his sickness to bear the whole weight of the affairs. They also voted to send a second fleet of reinforcements, under the command of Eurymedon, who commanded in the first Athenian expedition in Sicily, and Demosthenes, the hero of Pylos and Sphacteria. Immediately, Eurymedon sailed for Sicily with an advanced squadron of 10 ships and 120 talents of silver, with the news that Nicias was to still be in command, that Menander and Euthydemus were elevated, and that Demosthenes would arrive in the spring with a much larger force. Then, the two new generals would join the other three for a total of five to command both fleets for the campaign season of 413 BC. At the same time that Eurymedon sailed off, the Athenians also sent 20 ships around the Peloponnese to now Pactus in order to prevent reinforcements from crossing over to Sicily from Corinth. Plutarch mentions that even before Nicias' letter had arrived, the Athenians had wished to send a reinforcement force to Sicily the following spring, but it was denied because the leading men back in Athens had felt some jealousy of the preliminary good fortunes that Nicias had achieved. But now that it was clear that this no longer was the case, and that Nicias' forces were in dire straits, they were all eager to send aid. However, it may be a bit shocking to some that the Athenians doubled down here. The majority of the promises and expectations of the Warhawk faction, before the expedition, had proved to be unfounded, and its major architect, Alcibiades, was now an enemy of the state and advising the Spartans against them. One would think that the Athenians would have felt deceived by the expedition's proponents, swallowed their losses, and recalled the expedition. But they didn't, and it goes to show that, like Nicias, they too hadn't learned anything over the past two years. Thucydides blames the continuation of the Sicilian campaign on the greed, ignorance, and foolishness of the direct Athenian democracy. However, this is actually the opposite of the quick-trigger mood swings that wealthy elites like Thucydides usually rail against democracies. The Athenian people here showed determination to carry through what they had begun, in spite of setbacks and disappointments. They viewed retreat as a blow to their prestige, as it would question their strength. This, in fact, is common among powerful states even into modern times, regardless of their constitutions, when they are unexpectedly thwarted or bogged down by an opponent that they anticipated would be weak and easily defeated. General support for these type of ventures will remain strong until there is an utter disaster. And although Plutarch says that Nicias was only willing to choose commands that he knew would be quick, easy, and successful, the Athenian people only knew that he never lost, and even his name was connected to Nike, the goddess of victory. In addition, he was a very pious man, who in their minds had the favor of the gods. So it shouldn't really be surprising then, that on the heels of the scandals of the mutilation of the Herms and the profanation of the Eleusinian mysteries, the Athenians were unwilling to excuse their ill general who they believed surely would recover and bring them a victory ordained by the gods. So you can imagine their shock when they heard reports the following year that Nicias was now dead and that the rest of their forces had also either been slaughtered or were now slaves to the Syracusans. We will find out how such a calamity came about next episode. 
So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 101, Disaster in Sicily.